The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Improving the Detection and Management of Cardiac Immune-Related Adverse Events in Patients with Cancer is a Must. Are you prepared? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash AZM860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome. It is a pleasure to be here with PeerView Live educating you about immune-related adverse events, and especially the cardiovascular adverse events, which is an important part of cardio-oncology. My name is Javed Moslehi. I'm a cardiologist, and I'm at UCSF. I'm being accompanied by my colleague, Doug Johnson, somebody who I've had the pleasure to work with and learn from for the last few years, who is an oncologist, a melanoma doctor, and Vanderbilt University. And together, we're going to be talking about immune-related toxicities that we see with these new immune-based therapies. So again, we're here to talk about this burgeoning field of cardio-oncology and really focus on an area that's really come about over the last decade, which is the advent of immune-based therapies, which really didn't exist prior to 2010 or so and where we are beginning to see cardiovascular issues, both issues that occur acutely, but things that can arise over time. I think one of the take-homes you will take from this uh, discussion is that this really takes a team. It's about dialogue with our oncology colleagues. It's about ways to improving and diagnosing these new issues that we're encountering. And, uh, uh, and that, that sort of will be a big focus of our talk. I think the other thing to think about is that immunotherapies are here to stay. Again, as I mentioned, a decade ago, we were barely using these drugs, but near, now nearly 50% of the patients are getting, are eligible for treatment with immune-based therapies and specifically the class of therapies we're gonna talk about, which are immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, immune-related toxicity that encompass among them cardiac issues are things we're beginning to see increasingly just because the drugs are being used more common um, among a growing number of cancers and that these can occur in the context of other immune-related adverse events. So as a cardiologist, we have to think about the musculoskeletal and other immune-related adverse events that can occur, occur, uh, affect other organs. And I think the future is that, uh, 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 although the first immune checkpoint inhibitor was approved in 2011, we're just going to see a wider use of these therapies for a growing number of cancer teams. And again, I think being cognizant of what these new toxicities are is absolutely critical. And again, just an overview, we're going to talk about some of the cancer therapies. We're going to introduce the therapies. We're going to talk about the various immune-related adverse events, but really focus on the cardiac ones and really how a cardiology and oncology collaboration can help improve uh, uh, pay, uh, outcomes in patients with cancer. And with that, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Doug Johnson. We've been working together over the last six years really trying to understand these immune-related toxicities. And as you hear from his talk, I have been learning every day about what these therapies are, and I'll let Doug take it away from here. Doug. Uh, thanks so much, Javed. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here, and thanks to the audience for joining. 
So the first question, of course, that uh, people who don't think about this every day, like I do, who have other interests perhaps, uh, is what are immune checkpoint inhibitors? Now, this, uh, this figure kind of shows schematically what immune checkpoint inhibitors are and really two classes of therapies that we think about. By the way, there's a downloadable resource that's available um, on the website that you can uh, reference as well. And I'm not going to go into too nitty gritty here, but suffice it to say the two different classes of therapies are the anti-CTLA-4 drugs, which were first uh, invented or identified in, in the 2010-2011 range, uh, first approved at that point. And these really work at the level of T cell priming. So when T cells are first activated, they are activated by, or they are blocked by the CTLA-4. And so there's two ways to, to have a car go. You can either turn on the gas or you can uh, turn off the brakes. And so these immune checkpoint inhibitors really turn off the brakes of T cells, activate the immune system to hopefully attack the cancer. But as you'll see, they can have some collateral damage. On the right, really the more relevant class of immune checkpoint inhibitors, the PD-1 and PDL one agents. And these are approved in a whole bunch of different cancers as I'll show you in just one moment. And these really function at the level of the tumor microenvironment where T cells are at the tumor, they recognize the tumor, and they're really shut off by this PD-1, PDL one interaction. And so if you block that with these immune therapy agents, uh, you can then re-establish re the T cell function and, and kill the tumor, hopefully. So what are the names of these drugs? Well, I think most people who are not in oncology sort of view our, our oncology drugs as, as this uh, you know, alphabet soup of, of different agents. And I think these uh, therapies do little to dispel that, especially with some of the, uh, the, the newer uh, jargon of including some of these uh, four, four letter uh, codes at the end. But you can see these are the names of the therapies and really nivolumab and pembrolizumab were two of the first ones approved and certainly ones we'll be talking about a little more today. And as you can see on the bottom, uh, the anti-CTLA-4 agent is ipilimumab, and it's the only approved anti-CTLA-4 agent. And one thing, just a side note, in general, we think of many of these agents as having roughly similar efficacy and toxicity, although certainly there are, there are differences between agents, but uh, certainly they can be thought of uh, in general terms as having fairly similar uh, efficacy and toxicity. And so these are the eight approved uh, checkpoint inhibitors, although this is a growing list and it's certainly possible even by the time this talk airs that there will be additional therapies that are approved. So what... Uh, now, what, what cancers are these treated in? As Javin mentioned, about half of cancer patients now are eligible to receive immune checkpoint inhibitors. And I'm certainly not going to read off this laundry list of cancers that are, that are now eligible to be treated with checkpoint inhibitors. But as you can see, there's a lot of very common offenders, including non-small cell lung cancer, including renal cell carcinoma, liver cancer, urothelial cancer, triple negative breast cancer, melanoma, a large range of different cancer types. And so these are now proliferating and really becoming a pillar of cancer therapy, along with chemotherapy, along with radiation, along with surgery. Immunotherapy has really become, has come of age over the last few years. And not only that, immune therapy was initially used as single agent therapy as, as, as a, a standalone drug but they're really proliferating in clinical trials and now with FDA approved regimens of not only anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1 uh, as monotherapies, but really in combination with a bunch of different agents. Now, Javid, as a cardiologist, do any of these combination regimens grab you the combination partners? Uh, did, did some of these have uh, cardiovascular effects? So before I had the chance to work with you, Doug, I, much of my field clinically was worried about these other targets. So for example, with VEGF inhibitors, we see the patients have hypertension, have this reversible cardiomyopathy, 
have uh, a vascular events with MEK inhibitors. We think about cardiac dysfunction, although we don't see that as much. And with other therapies, especially as these drugs uh, are being applied to triple negative breast cancer, which you have in the bottom here, these patients get the classic cardiotoxic drugs, often anthracyclines uh, and radiation. So it makes me think about a lot of other cardiac issues that are non-immune related potentially. Yeah, and we won't, we won't really talk a ton about these combinations yet, but I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface on what some of the cardiac and non-cardiac effect of some of these combination regimens. Now, the other thing that's important to know is that, as you can see on the left, initially these therapies were really looked at for patients that really had no other treatment options, patients who had failed all of their treatments, had metastatic disease, and this, these were used as a last-ditch effort. Well, as we move to the right, more and more as, as these agents establish their effectiveness, we're now starting to use these in the first-line setting for metastatic patients, then for patients that have locally advanced disease, and now even for patients with early-stage cancers. And so a number of different cancers, these are used in patients with local disease or regional disease that are surgically resected and have some chance of being cured without any therapy. And we know that immune checkpoint inhibitors do improve long-term survival and long-term outcomes in some of these patients. But what this also, the other upshot to this is that many patients who don't have active metastatic disease are getting these treatments and potentially patients who have much better chance of long-term survival. And so managing the side effects, which I'll talk about in a moment, is particularly critical in these populations. So what are some of the data? Don't worry, this is the only survival curve that I'll show here. You, you know, all of you know that uh, oncologists like to show these, but this is the only one, so, so never fear. Now, this is one of the early phase one studies that was looked at for nivolumab. And what you can kind of see here is that these curves, in many cases, especially you can see prominently with melanoma, is that there's a so-called tail on the curve. So what you can see here is that, you know, many patients unfortunately don't respond to treatment and, and die within the first several years. But many of the patients who are alive at three years and then five years continue to have excellent long-term survivals. And keep in mind, these are patients with metastatic cancer, which who really would have had essentially a 0% or near, near that five-year survival rate a number of years ago. And as you can see, uh, those numbers are certainly not where we'd like them to be, but they're certainly impressive. And in fact, patients who are treated with a combination of a CTLA-4 and PD-1 inhibitor with metastatic melanoma, again, a cancer that would have had 5% long-term survival, now have a 50% long-term survival. So that the, the chance of survival is now tenfold better with uh, these, these immunotherapies, especially when they're used in combination. So I hope you have convinced you that these therapies are here to stay and that perhaps they're going to be commonly used enough that, that people of all specialties, in particular cardiologists, uh, may need to at least have some awareness of this. Well, let me go into a little bit about immune-related adverse effects, including the cardiovascular uh, effects of these therapies. And to do that, I'll go into a, a case. So this is a patient who's 68 years old, who has stage four non-small cell lung cancer, who comes in with shortness of breath. And so a little bit of background about this patient is he was diagnosed uh, a few months ago with stage four non-small cell lung cancer. He had uh, multifocal lung nodules at the time, as well as a pleural effusion, as well as he has a history of uh, DVT and coronary artery disease. And so he developed symptoms and presented uh, to the emergency department with three days of shortness of breath with exertion, as well as dry cough and, a fatigue, and fatigue. And you can see his medications there. And this patient had been treated uh, with pembrolizumab for the last several months, which is an anti-PD-1 uh, therapy that I showed in one of the earlier slides. 
And so this patient was found to be hypoxic um, and have otherwise fairly normal vital signs besides that. His EKG was unremarkable and he didn't have a pulmonary embolism, but he did have on bilateral ground glass opacities um, in, in both lungs. And in this patient, this is just an example of an immune-related adverse event, uh, effect that, you know, potentially could have been cardiovascular in origin, but, but turned out to be immune checkpoint inhibitor pneumonitis. And the, and the scan re result there is very classic for pneumonitis from immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so how do we deal with these kinds of therapies? Well, we hold treatment and we use high dose of steroids to uh, reinstate immune homeostasis. Uh, so this patient doesn't have continued rampant inflammation affecting their lungs. And I'll talk a little bit more about treatment in just a moment. So how do these toxicities differ from traditional cancer chemotherapy toxicities? On the left, it sort of shows some of the characteristics of chemotherapy side effects, where you can see almost every patient's going to be affected by some sort of chemotherapy uh, toxicity. They're oftentimes fairly well described, you know, cytopenias, uh, hair loss, uh, nausea, vomiting, you know, really problematic side effects, also pretty well described side effects. And usually there's relatively few organs affected, you know, basically cells that are rapidly dividing and turning over are affected. And the time course is fairly predictable. You know, you're going to have cytopenias that happen, uh, you know, in a, in a well-defined number of days after treatment, and then those should resolve. Now, immunotherapy, by contrast, is quite different. Um, in many patients, especially those treated with monotherapy, will actually have minimal or no side effects at all. That auto, the, the AE profile is quite variable where basically any organ can be affected at almost any time, including even patients who have, who have uh, stopped treatment. And so these toxicities are quite unpredictable and don't fall sort of this predictable time course of chemotherapy toxicities. So why do these occur? Well, as you, as you might recall, uh, several minutes ago, I talked about the mechanism of action of these immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so the goal here is that they, that we activate the patient's T cells, uh, which are some of the attacking cells of the immune system against the cancer. Well, these can have collateral damage and attack our own organ systems. And this is in particularly important as we use more and more aggressive toxicities, as we try to go after the cancer uh, more aggressively and gives patients a, a chance of, of long-term survival and cure. Well, these also ramp up the toxicities against different organs. So what is, what's the timing like? Well, as you can see, as I mentioned in the, a couple of slides ago, these toxicities are pretty unpredictable timing-wise. So there's some general trends that it kind of shows here, uh, but boy, that's, uh, that's not very helpful in terms of uh, trying to tease out when uh, patients are going to have uh, toxicities. They really can kind of occur anytime on treatment, and especially that's true as, as more aggressive combinations are used. Okay, so I've talked a lot about, you know, general, general, generalizations about these toxicities. What, how does this actually manifest clinically? Well, as you can see here, almost it's almost the question's not as much what organ system can be affected. It's more of the question of what organ system is not affected, and there's very, very few actually. Um, you can see here that just about any organ system can be affected. There's a downloadable resource actually on the website that, that has this kind of information, but you can see the heart is certainly one of the organs affected, but also the lungs, the colon, the endocrine organs, including the thyroid, the skin, the joints, again, almost any organ system can be affected.
So that's the bad news is that diagnostically, these can be quite challenging to diagnose and identify. But the good news is these generally have fairly similar treatment strategies. Again, the pathophysiology of these uh, immune-related adverse events, including those of the heart, is inflammation. And so uh, treating these therapies is to withdraw the offending agent, so the immune checkpoint inhibitors, but these, th these therapies have long half-lives. And so there also needs to be some sort of active treatment to mitigate the inflammation. And so oral steroids are, or, or intravenous steroids, depending on how sick the patient is, is really an, a key cornerstone of, of the treatment of these adverse events. And it's also quite important, as noted, to refer patients to appropriate specialists. Certainly in, in this context, cardiologists play a key role whenever the heart is affected. So let's actually get into some of the cardiac uh, effects. So this is a patient who, this is actually, you know, drawn from a real patient that we had that Javed and I both took care of um, uh, a while ago that really sparked our interest in, into this uh, type of uh, adverse events. And so this is a patient who actually came in with sort of a pleuritic chest pain, a little bit of a shortness of breath. This patient had been diagnosed two months earlier with disseminated metastatic melanoma, multifocal organ involvement. Patient had a history of hypertension, but really no obvious cardiac history, but developed some of these symptoms for several days and came in again with shortness of breath with exertion, pleuritic chest pain, cough, and fatigue. And this patient had been started on a combination of immunotherapy with nivolumab and ipilimumab 12 days earlier. So it just started on therapy. And in terms of her exam, it was relatively unremarkable, was, was had a relatively es escalated respiratory rate, uh, but really didn't have uh, obvious findings on, on physical exam, other than the fact that she just looked kind of sick. And so uh, she did have very remarkable uh, objective data though, uh, when we checked laboratory findings. So as you can see, her troponin was uh, remarkably elevated. Her CK was elevated, liver function tests were up. Her echocardiogram, by contrast, was not terribly uh, remarkable. Her, e her ECG, her actually her very first ECG had more or less was unchanged from her baseline, but this rapidly deteriorated over the next 24 hours, as you can see from first degree heart block to actually second degree to third degree to ventricular tachycardia. And you can see uh, two of the patient's uh, later EKGs on the right. Uh, so while I was an oncologist, this is a striking case. Uh, Javid, what's your impression of this as a cardiologist? What would you think about when, if a patient came in with uh, this kind of presentation? Yeah, both the significant elevation in the troponin and the deterioration of the EKGs point to basically three things that we teach our medical students. One being acute coronary syndrome. It's always uh, should be on the differential. The other is infiltrative heart disease, and that's sort of yet to be described, of course. And this is one thing you think about with patients getting immunotherapies, which is these immune-based uh, infiltration that we call myocarditis. And the last is significant trauma to the heart. And that, that data one, you would obviously know by looking at the patient. But the common things being common, I think about ACS. And if you told me about the checkpoint inhibitor history, I would then think about the infiltrative heart disease. Yeah, so and this by that I mean myocarditis. Sorry. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's a great differential. Now this was back, you know, five plus years ago, where we knew a little bit less about immune checkpoint inhibitors than we did now. But this patient ultimately um, was was diagnosed with immune checkpoint inhibitor related myocarditis with associated myositis, and so. Here's a biopsy of the patient that you can see on the upper right hand where the, the patient's myocardium is just absolutely infiltrated with T cells. And these are CD8 T cells, which means these are cytotoxic T cells, basically the T cells that kill not only cancer, but also potentially our own uh, organ systems. 
And what was striking to us is this patient, unfortunately, uh, died, as I'll detail in a minute. And the patient had an autopsy. And as you can see on the, uh, possibly see, I'm not sure if you can as well, on the, on the right with the green arrow, you can see the patient's, this is from the patient's esophagus. And the smooth muscle in the, in the top left, I'm sorry, was really not affected at all. But the skeletal muscle was absolutely obliterated with T cells. And so this patient had all the patient's organs otherwise were completely unaffected, but the patient's heart and skeletal muscle were just absolutely uh, devastated by this T cell Im immune process. And so this, this details the patient's clinical course where the patient had rapidly, these rapidly progressing arrhythmias and worsening troponin levels and uh, worsening clinical status and respiratory status. And so the patient was started on high dose steroids, but despite that was intubated and, and unfortunately continued to deteriorate both electrocardiographically and, uh, and clinically and, and uh, had, had fulminant arrhythmias and the patient uh, died within a few days of hospital admission. So this case and several others, as well as several large studies that we've done over time, have helped us and, and others as well that really define this new syndrome of immune checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis. And so what are some of the clinical characteristics of this new syndrome? Well, first, uh, the patients have T-cell and macrophage infiltration in their striated muscles. So not just the heart, but the skeletal muscle as well. And as you can see, a normal picture of myocardium on the left, or at least that's what Java tells me as a cardiologist, what my normal myocardium looks like. Uh, but on the right, you can see just the lymphocytes absolutely throughout the heart and the sort of pink stuff is just necrotic uh, muscle. So, you know, you can, you can certainly tell that that's not the heart muscle that's, that's going to uh, uh, work very effectively for, for the patient. The, the ECG abnormalities are also quite striking, as I'm sure Javid will mention. Uh, the patients have you know, pretty severe arrhythmias and conduction delay. Now, the good news is this is relatively uncommon. Uh, with single agent therapy, it's probably in the range of 0.1 to 0.5%. And with combination therapy, it's as high as 1% incidence. So this is an, uh, can be a potentially devastating syndrome, but it is fairly uncommon. So who does this happen to? Well, unfortunately, it's pretty unpredictable. And unfortunately, it tends to happen like in our patient here, very early on therapy. So this is not patients usually who've been on therapy for years. This is patients who often just start therapy. And the mortality rate, despite trying to study this for the last few years, remains pretty distressingly high, up to 50%. Um, and oftentimes patients will have myositis and a myasthenia gravis-like syndrome. And so sometimes that actually can be uh, the cause of death where patients can have total body paralysis, including uh, respiratory muscle involvement and diaphragm involvement. And the patients can have really fulminant uh, respiratory failure as well. Now, the heart can also be affected in a number of ways, as we'll talk about in, in a moment, where patients can also have pericarditis and vasculitis and arrhythmias on these therapies. And so this slide makes that point in that myocarditis is certainly the biggest and the most obvious toxicity from checkpoint inhibitors that affects the heart, but also the pericardium and the vascular system can also be uh, impaired. And we also are, I think, just beginning to scratch the surface on what the potential long-term effects of these therapies are. So with that, I'll turn it back over uh, to uh, the main event, uh, Dr. Moslehi. Thank you very much, Doug. That was a great introduction into this area. Now, I want to take a step back because as cardiologists, as we're sitting in this group, we're obviously here because we're interested in cardio-oncology, and it's very important to think about this, these new theory areas we're seeing, especially in the old context of what is cardio-oncology. Well, we have known for many years that ca cancer itself can cause cardiac issues, and we see this in a uh, number of patients with myeloma and amyloid, 
as well as patients with neuroendocrine heart, uh, neuroendocrine tumors that can cause heart disease directly. In addition, we as a field have appreciated in the cardio-oncology space that there are common risk factors that predispose to both cancer and heart disease. Classic uh, cardiac risk factors like obesity, hyperlipidemia can be important risk factors for uh, uh, developing cancer. In addition, some things like genetic predispositions, for example, mutations we see in the blood that our oncology colleagues know for many years cause hematological malignancy, and this condition is called CHIP, now we realize is an important risk factor for developing cancer. And all of this has relevance in the bottom to the growing number of cancer patients and cancer survivors. And we and others have developed an ABCD guidelines where we can contain these cardiac issues in our cancer survivors. But really the meat of the issue is right in the middle. That includes the growing number of cancer therapies that are now in existence. And our oncology colleagues have done such a great job introducing, doing the trials that these drugs are being used. And these can have a very, very diverse cardiac, vascular, and metabolic issues. And that's highlighted here. So really we have to think about even beyond the heart with some of the new drugs. And this area of the toxicology, the drugs affecting the heart is nothing new. We knew 50 years ago that if we gave little kids anthracyclines, if you radiated their entire chest, they grow up to be 25 and 30 and have heart disease. And everybody knows 25 year olds should not have heart disease. As, we, as our oncology colleagues got into more specific targeted therapies, we hope these cardiovascular issues would go away. They are generally safer, but each drug, depending on the target that you're dealing with, you can have a number of different issues. We learned that from Herceptin or Trastuzumab used to treat about 20 to 30% of breast cancer patients. And as we talked about earlier, our kidney cancer patients who get VEGF inhibitors can have a myriad of cardiovascular issues that are seen in the top, in the, in the top right. And then this is really where the field is going, this top bottom of the iceberg. And I look at this dog and I'm overwhelmed. Can you help me out here? What are we looking at? <laughs> well, as a melanoma specialist, all I know about is, uh, is, is the cancer immunotherapies and maybe the BRAF and MEK inhibitors. So uh, I think it's a problem we're all trying to deal with as these therapies rapidly proliferate. And so we, I certainly uh, you know, ask my cardiology colleagues for help uh, very, very equally as well. And then the other thing I think that really captures my mind, Doug, is the survivors, right? We're beginning to see more and more patients survive. More melanoma patients, as you mentioned, survive. So what should we be thinking about there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really striking how, you know, 10 years ago, these patients would have had no chance of having long-term survivorship. And now I've got a whole cl a can clinic full of, of, of survivors. And so understanding the long-term effects of these treatments is still a major unmet need. And so uh, partnerships between cardiology and oncology is incredibly important. And I will, I'm the first to say this is an area we definitely have to understand with immune checkpoint inhibitors. It's not something we're going to talk about today, but it's this type of thing we have to be thinking about because these patients are surviving and then what happens down the road with the patients. But for now, we are again going to focus on these acute toxicities. This is what we have seen most commonly so far 
and at least we have some data to discuss with you. And this slide is a little bit a review of what Doug showed earlier, but I think it's an important slide and it's important to go through this one more time. Again, you can see a myriad of acute cardiovascular issues with immune checkpoint inhibitors, but we are going to especially think about myocarditis because probably it's the most common and most likely it's the best that's been studied. So just another review for you. This represents classic myocarditis. You see dead heart tissue and you see T cells and macrophages in there. It occurs early, especially the more fulminant cases after introduction of immune checkpoint inhibitors. We have tried for years to look for risk factors, but the one that we keep coming back to is a cancer one. It is basically when you combine checkpoint inhibitors, when you combine a CTLA-4 and PD-1 inhibitor, that seems to be the main risk factor. You see concomitant myositis, as well as possibly this myasthenia gravis-like syndrome. But the really important thing for our cardiology colleagues is this presents with electrocardiographic abnormalities, arrhythmias, and less the heart failure phenotype, the systolic dysfunction that we think my, when we think about myocarditis. And again, while the incidence is not particularly common, less than 1%, it is mortal when it occurs. So we have to be very uh, cognizant and we really have to think about new ways of treating it. And I think one issue I was gonna touch on is how do we encounter this clinically? Uh, and this is really important because I think this next case that Dr. Johnson will discuss, I think really ter ter uh, illustrates the curveballs we see clinically as these come through the door. So this next case was one that we also jointly uh, helped manage. This was a patient who was 75, who was emergently transferred from an outside hospital to our hospital and was transferred immediately to the catheterization lab. And essentially all that the team knew when the patient came in was that the patient was having a, a, an instemi, was short of breath, had a troponin of 10. And the patient was taken directly to the catheterization lab and was found to have a 70% LED occlusion and underwent PCI. But unfortunately, the patients uh, continued to deteriorate. And so looking at the next slide, uh, this sort of shows the patient's initial e ECG. And so does that strike you at all, Javin? Yeah, the couple of things strike me actually about this case. One is how quickly our cath colleagues and we as cardiologists act to really save the arteries. But again, this, in this case, the occlusion probably was there for some time. And it's one thing that I've learned as a cardiologist, how to take a minute and do the history uh, from the patient as well as you can. I think the other thing that really comes out at me is the troponin continuing to go up. If you think you've fixed the artery, the troponin should be trending up as it has. And last thing, the EKG, you see a separation between the A and the V you're beginning to see evidence of heart block. In fact, you're seeing it here. And that's not typically what we see with uh, 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 MI, unless it's a right-sided MI. And certainly we don't see that with something that's been fixed. So that's really what's jumping out at me here. The troponin going up, which it shouldn't, and the EKGs. And this next EKG nicely illustrates what had to happen next, which is you put a pacer in the patient to try to uh, uh, make sure the A and the V are talking to each other. So very quickly after the patient went to the cath lab, the, the resident uh, was, was of course doing the very appropriate resident thing and their due diligence. 
and, and was able to talk to the family and figured out that this patient had actually just been on a combination of immune checkpoint inhibitor, pembrolizumab with xitinib, which is a VEGF inhibitor, and had gotten two doses of therapy. And the second was received just five days uh, before admission. So does this frame your thinking, Javed, about what to do next? Yeah, I think one thing I'm thinking about, of course, is the possibility of myocarditis. But I'll be honest, the VEGF inhibitor sort of throws a curveball at me because I talked about some of the VEGF inhibitor toxicities we see, but the introduction and the fact that the patient that was on checkpoint inhibitor, it makes me think, especially with a rapid deterioration of the clinical condition that this could be myocarditis, but I want to get a definitive idea of what is myocarditis in this patient. And so this next slide really illustrates, this is a nice collaboration between Doug, myself, and our colleague, Mark Benaka at University of Colorado, where you have to think about as a cardiologist with all the curveballs thrown at us with the different therapies that the patient could be on, what this patient has. And I think at the top, it's always important to rule out ACS. And this was appropriately looked at in this patient. But if you're thinking myocarditis, you have to have more definitive idea that this patient has myocarditis. And in general, and I wish there was a simple way we could diagnose myocarditis, and that's definitely not the case right now. So we generally think about the combination of EKG and biomarker, which can hone us into thinking about uh, that this could be myocarditis, but frankly, it doesn't reduce it to just myocarditis, the differential, reduce the differential. And so you really need a combination of imaging and the most definitive therapy, which is biopsy, uh, to be able to uh, uh, diagnose this patient. And in this case, tissue is the issue. And I'm going to take the liberty of moving on to show you this next slide, which is where we see evidence of myocarditis. Yeah. So Javed, you've, you've, you, you sort of highlight the difficulty of diagnosis in many of these cases where it's not always just a patient who's received combination immunotherapy and present with this flagrant uh, diagnosis and, and muscle involvement and so forth. Uh, it, very, it very much can be complicated. So what would you do next for this patient? Yeah, this is a great question, Doug. I think one thing I went through that last slide rather quickly but we do have a downloadable form of this where you can use clinically. But here, as I see this, and I, I, I think the first thing I think about is how to give immunosuppressive therapy and give the steroids. That's the part I think about. I would give a high dose steroid. Uh, our colleague, Don, Tom Nealon has shown that if you give a higher dose steroid in a retrospective man, it, although it's a retrospective study, people do wetter. So I would give one gram solumedrol to this patient to see what happens. And so this is what was done. Uh, but unfortunately, the patient uh, may have had some very minimal improvement in troponin, but the patient's clinical status continued to deteriorate. Uh, so, you know, in a situation where you've kind of given the standard of care uh, and you've kind of done all the right things, but the patient's still going downhill, what do you do next? Yeah. So unfortunately, we're in a data-free zone. This is where the collaboration that we have had over the last few years as myself as a cardiologist thinks about other immunosuppressive therapies that I don't normally think about becomes into play. And as you know, uh, we have been working together to think about preclinical models where we can study this process better. We've made mice that are drug-induced as well as genetic knockout models. And with this, we're actually beginning to have some evidence 
that a drug like Abatacept may work. And as you know, our colleague, Joely Solomon, France was one of the first people to do this in patients. In fact, the first person to do it in patients were tree giving a patient that was doing very poorly as he nicely illustrated in this case report that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine where the troponin was heading up at the top where the patient was effectively paralyzed. And despite getting steroids, nothing was happening. Despite getting plasma exchange, nothing was happening. But after getting five doses of, of abatacep, the patient walked out of the hospital. And I think we are looking to these new therapies, uh, especially abatacep to think about uh, for patients that do not immediately respond to steroids. And I think this next case nicely illustrates this, Doug. I think you are going to walk with through this. This has got a lot of metastatic NSCLC that I don't know what it is, yeah. right? <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, and just to clarify, abatacept or abatacept, I never know, uh, is, is a treatment, is a, actually sort of the reverse of ipilimumab. It's a CTLA-4 fusion protein. So it's kind of uh, the opposite of an immune checkpoint inhibitor. So this is a patient, a 67-year-old gentleman with metastatic non-small cell lung cancer who was treated with a combination of chemotherapy and primbolizumab, uh, who came in with shortness of breath and heart racing, elevated uh, troponin in the following EKG. Um, and so uh, any thoughts about this one? Yeah, this patient's going pretty fast, I can tell you that. And there's a evidence of, I see some heart block potentially, but not really because I see some P waves along the way. Uh, but I think I would act on this fast and try to come up with a diagnosis quickly. And so uh, this patient did undergo biopsy. And uh, as you can see, uh, this patient, oh, actually, I think before the biopsy underwent a catheterization or it's possible it was at the same time. Uh, but, but this patient also had um, uh, significant uh, inflammation in the myocardium. And so I think this patient was, uh, you had then taken over this patient's case at, uh, I believe at UCSF now. Um, and so if you want to sort of take us through what you did uh, from there. Yeah, I should say I was consulted by the team here. And I think what's really interesting is they did all the right stuff. That EKG wasn't pathognomonic for anything. It was just not right. So they probably did an echocardiogram. It was normal. They probably did a catheterization and it was normal. And then right at the time of the catheterization, they said, we don't have a diagnosis. Let's think about it. And somebody done a history to know what the patient received and they did a biopsy then. And I think one of the points I would want to take home is that some of our studies show that even you can have CAD evidence of CAD on the catheterization, that does not rule out a checkpoint inhibitor. And I think as in checkpoint inhibitor myocarditis and as cardiologists, we have to get more comfortable with doing the biopsy, especially at the time of the cath when we're already there, because a lot of times the two things can be together. Some patients can have coronary artery disease and still have the myocarditis. And so we really have to be open and especially if we can get tissue, get tissue, because it helps us quickly diagnose the case. Because if this patient had not gotten the biopsy had come out, there were issues with respect to what does the patient still have. And so in this case, the patient actually received steroids and uh, was doing better. The troponin was starting to trim down. They sent the patient to the, uh, uh, to the cardiology service from this ICU and so people thought everything was going to be fine, except it wasn't because the intern or resident had been paged at this point. 
that now the patient is developing a new heart block that's more definitive. And here you see a EKG that shows high degree AV block and left axis deviation. Uh, and so now we are thinking about what to do. And interesting to me, what Doug will talk about is how there are actually guidelines within the oncology community about what to think of next for these IRAs and especially myocarditis that are not responsive to just straight up steroids. Yeah, so I think as an oncology community and as a multidisciplinary community, we've tried our best to identify what to do for patients who don't respond to steroids, not only with myocarditis, but with other toxicities. And so here's one algorithm given for patients who do develop myocarditis. And in the red box, there's some possible agents to, to potentially give to patients. And as you can see, it's a little bit of a grab bag. So there's, there's uh, a bad step based on the data you've heard. There's things like mycophenolate and, and fliximab from other, uh, other toxicities. So when, when, when uh, colitis doesn't respond to steroids, for example, and fliximab tends to work fairly well. And then there's potentially taking a, leaf, uh, a, a, a page from the book of the cardiac transplant because you give antithymocyte globulin. And so we really don't know what the best therapy, second line therapy for these patients are, uh, but there are a, a number of potential options that, that could be considered. I will say as a cardiologist, none of these therapies are straight up easy to use. So one of the things I would imp impress upon you, I hope, is you gotta have definite diagnosis, especially when you're gonna reach about other agents. I've heard many cases where people see the troponin increase and they see the EKG changes, don't really know whether it's myocarditis and you can give the steroids fine, but when you're reaching for these big guns, if you will, I think it's important to have more definitive diagnosis, whether it's imaging or preferably biopsy. I think it's really important to think about this. And in this case, uh, I'm happy to report the Abatacept to seem to do the trick in terms of at least the troponin is going down and the patient is now being uh, seen as an outpatient. And so we talked a little bit about what we do when we encounter patients with uh, uh, symptoms. But I think one of the questions that I always struggle with is what to do about surveillance. Should we have some things in place so that we see every patient that comes and sees Dr. Johnson in clinic should get some sort of cardiac testing to make sure this doesn't come about, that we catch it before the act, if you will. And I, I'm gonna go out on a limb here because this is actually really no data here. This was a statement that came about from a number of our colleagues who are uh, cardiologists, Lawrence Lehman at Heidelberg, Germany led this uh, initiative. And it's about when patients are being given immune checkpoint inhibitors, what should we check for? Well, I would argue strongly that every patient should have a baseline cardiac biomarker and an EKG. And that shouldn't be a question uh, because I think if you're going to especially think about surveillance, if you're going to check the biomarker or EKG later, you better have a baseline to compare it to. And at least in our practice, Patients who are high risk should probably get some sort of surveillance after their start on uh, treatment with immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, with cardiac biomarkers. We've done this, as you know, every two weeks for the first six weeks of treatment. And then the question becomes who is high risk? And I would argue one thing that people many times think about, my cardiology colleagues are pre-existing cardiomyopathy, 
although we don't truly know whether that's a real risk factor, where we do know where there is a risk factor is when you combine therapies. And at least what I would advocate is giving combination therapy, patients are getting combination therapies could have the cardiac biomarkers as surveillance strategy. And then from there, you got to do it to the drawing board, get the cardiologist involved, do a complete physical history, do an EKG, echocardiogram or MRI and move on from there. What do you think about this, Doug? Are we overdoing it here in our cardiology? Are we dictating what oncologists should do? Uh, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not an unreasonable approach. Certainly, this can be a very devastating toxicity. You know, I guess my perspective would be the risk for patients treated with single agent checkpoint inhibitor is very, very low. And so whether this is the best, I don't know, use of medical resources or, um, you know, uh, additional testing and so forth, I'm not quite so sure. I would 100% agree with close monitoring, particularly for patients on combination immune checkpoint inhibitors, but I'm not so sure. I don't tend to monitor terribly closely from a cardiac standpoint over and above symptoms for patients on single agent therapy, just because it is quite rare. And I agree with you on that. And just, we're going to close on a couple of notes. This patient specifically is a patient that came in that saw me in clinic who'd received a novel check inhibitor, none that Dr. Johnson talked about, but rather came in with sudden chest pain. And this, uh, and while the initial uh, workup was negative, the MRI showed this. And for my cardiology colleagues, uh, at least my imaging colleagues, experts tell me this is classic for myocarditis. You see on the right, the white uh, layer that you see. Although some of my colleagues, uh, imaging colleagues, look at the left, and besides the pericardial ring that we see, we see some white in the myocardial issue, and you can call this myopericarditis, if you will. And this is a patient that was treated just with steroids, and because of the pericarditis, was also given colchicine. Uh, but as we have learned, uh, and we have known in cardiology for many years, patients who have pericarditis, is often hard to downgrade and type taper the steroids. And this is a patient that's been on and off steroids for much of the past two years. So it really, I think, uh, makes, at least for me, made me think outside the box that not everything is classic myocarditis like we once we saw. And so this is what the patient receives. So this is a lot here, Doug. What, what are you thinking about as an oncologist? Because you were just talked about cardiac issues, but I'm sure you're thinking about so many different things as the patient uh, comes uh, when you see a patient in clinic. Well, I think this highlights the importance of, of cardiologist collaboration as well as many other specialties as highlighted here. You know, this is something where uh, as an oncologist, I don't have uh, expertise in the heart and in the joints and the skin and in the, the liver. And, and I really need uh, help dealing with some of these toxicities. And not only that, uh, I need help with preventing and anticipating and detecting and treating and monitoring uh, these, these, these toxicities. And, and the multidisciplinary aspect is, is incredibly important. And I think I also would like to, you know, highlight the importance here of, of our, some of our colleagues and other health professions, including pharmacists, including nurses, uh, they often play a really critical role in actually uh, doing some of the, the hard work of monitoring the patients and understanding their symptoms um, and, and counseling the patients and so forth. Because again, without a well-functioning team, uh, it, it doesn't matter how good of a, a physician we all are if, if uh, the patient doesn't know what to look for or if the patient does, can't call in and, and alert us to, to toxicities. Um, and now this, this, uh, this, uh, there's a downloadable practice aid on the, on the website here too, to reinforce some of this critical 
um, uh, point here. And I think um, you know this. This is this this final slide here just really reinforces the importance of of multidisciplinary care, which does include uh, the nurse, the the cardiologist. I think the other thing to think about here is these potentially are, are areas that we can think about start starting to use new technologies. Um, uh, wearables, perhaps, to identify uh, arrhythmias uh, or other uh, you know, hypoxia in the case of pneumonitis. We can also think about things like tele telehealth to monitor patients more closely. Uh, there's really no reason we necessarily have to be wed to the traditional format of patients uh, just coming in to see us in the clinic, but uh, we, we, we can think more creatively here in involving our whole team and involving technology to try to improve care for these patients. So I think that comes to the end of some of our uh, planned uh, comments. So we have a number of questions from the audience uh, already. And so I think, you know, one key question that I have for, that I have for you that, that's also been echoed by a number of the audiences, you know, immune checkpoint inhibitors are only one therapy uh, from, for, uh, for cancer. There's a number of other immune uh, type agents that stimulate the immune system in a variety of different ways, including cellular therapy. Uh, you know, what are some of the cardiovascular effects of some of these therapies? Yes, that's a really good question. It's really important for all of my colleagues in cardiology to realize immunotherapies are coming in and overtaking much of oncology care, but immune checkpoint inhibitors really represent one slice of the immune-based therapies that we encounter. Now, one thing we have, I, I will be the first to say, first of all, we have limited uh, knowledge and uh, because the drugs are being built as we're generated, as we're talking here. So we have a little less experience with these other therapies. We do know from cellular-based therapies, CAR-Ts, you can get the cytokine release syndrome that can manifest many ways cardiovascular. It can lead to hypertension, hypotension. It can lead to arrhythmias. And it's unclear whether these are due to simply the cytokine release that occurs or it's a cardiac specific issue. All we do know is we should treat the cytokine release syndrome as quickly as we can. And at least the hope as is that we ameliorate these issues. And some of these things I have to say as a cardiologist makes me almost think about COVID sometimes, especially with these new therapies. Yeah, so speaking of COVID, there are a number of questions about, about COVID, the elephant in the room, I guess. Uh, so, you know, how does myocarditis associated with checkpoint inhibitors, how does it sort of compare and contrast to say vaccine induced myocarditis or perhaps myocarditis that, that could be due to COVID, some a viral myocarditis, for example? So that's a really good question. We just recently actually had a nice meeting on focused on myocarditis. This was sponsored by the NIH and it brought many experts in the room thinking about this and thinking about COVID especially as issues come about. And here's my takeaway from this. With COVID itself, you can see a number of cardiovascular issues, but we're yet to see whether those really represent classic myocarditis, much more like we know it. And I think many experts sort of agree with that. No question there can be cardiac issues, but it's not classic myocarditis. And I think the jury with vaccines are actually very still sort of out. We've heard of many patients having symptoms, but with classic myocarditis, I think of really one good study where there was tissue diagnosis of myocarditis and our colleague, Corey Levine at WashU, who had several cases published in the New England Journal of Medicine several weeks ago, or several months ago, I should say. And I think this really 
uh, I think we're going to probably be seeing the tip of the iceberg. Uh, but it is something for us to think about. We really have to understand these uh, cardiovascular issues that come along with COVID or COVID vaccine much better. Going back to the oncology issue, another question that we keep seeing is, what can you, Dr. Johnson, as oncology do to help prevent some of these issues? What can we do about this? Boy, I, I wish I knew. Uh, so there are a number of clinical trials ongoing now that are combining combination immunotherapy with some sort of other immunomodulatory agent to try to prevent these things. So there's a currently a trial, for example, of nivolumab and ipilimumab plus tocilizumab, which is an anti-IL-6, so an anti-cytokine agent. Uh, that's just one example of several different options that are currently ongoing. So far, the, the small studies that have previously been published um, have really not been able to find an obvious uh, mitigation of, of different toxicities with these uh, with certain with other strategies. Now, again, there's a whole a new suite of them coming along. So I'll be looking forward to seeing some of those. Uh, but unfortunately, right now, the only thing we could potentially do to, uh, to not give myocarditis is to give single agent, and that might not be the optimal strategy for a patient's cancer. That's really good. I think the other thing I always think about is what are some of the risk factors? What do we do for patients with bad hearts? You and your colleagues have sent occasionally patients to me and say, you know, the heart's not doing too well. Should we give the patient checkpoint inhibitors? And I'm going to go out and limb here. I think if the patient needs the checkpoint inhibitor, I have not seen data that should absolutely exclude any patients with a lower EF, with a history of coronary artery disease, that we shouldn't give checkpoint inhibitors. We should absolutely not be withholding potentially life-saving therapy in these patients, especially when it's indicated, especially when there are no other options. Uh, what do you think about that, Doug? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that, you know, I guess the one, the one, you know, obvious exception would be something like cardiac transplant. But, uh, but besides that, I, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, I've, I've certainly treated in conjunction with you and your colleagues, you know, patients with really severely depressed injection fraction, for example, or bad coronary artery disease and, and seen some excellent outcomes from a cancer standpoint. So I, I completely agree with you. I guess that also brings up the question of, of, of long-term monitoring for patients, you know, perhaps with myocarditis or perhaps just treated with checkpoint inhibitors. Well, you know, how would you monitor these patients as a cardiologist? Yeah, really good question. Again, I just keep talking about this tip of the iceberg, but this may be the true here. Many of the cases we have recognized are the more acute cases. And as you and I and our colleagues at University of Alabama showed, there were these cases of smoldering myocarditis when the troponin is slightly high, when the patient's generally doing well, and the patient's frankly responding to the checkpoint inhibitors. So we keep them on it. But then what happens over time to these patients? Does their LV function go down? And this is really something that is uh, that we're in a completely data-free zone. Because again, we're seeing these patients survive and beat their cancer for the first time. And this is really a growing population that we've never seen before. And the patients who had these slight elevations in troponin, slight changes that we saw that were not that clinically meaningful where, or fulminant that we had to stop the therapies. But as these therapies combine, the question is how to best treat these patients and how to best monitor them. I think one thing I would point about, we, uh, you and I have talked about these ABCDE steps, which is now, this is now part of the guidelines at the NCCN, we as cardiologists, you as an oncologist and the primary care physician, we have to look at these cardiac risk factors, treat the blood pressure well, treat the cholesterol well, 
treat the diabetes, pay attention to diet. And I think for this group, we just have a, have, have a real low uh, threshold of looking and doing more deeper cardiac studies. At this point, I don't do it in my practice. My, I know my, some cardiology colleagues of mine will disagree, and I think it's good to disagree, but it's really takes, uh, is a testament to how little knowledge we have in this area and how really we have to think about collaborating together to understand these uh, and the real health of these patients better. So Doug, this has been a really good session just through this session that we've had. As I listened to the first part of your talk, I learned new stuff about what these new immune checkpoint inhibitors are as I have over the last few years uh, working with you. And I think it's really nice to see this collaboration and it's the kind of collaboration we hope to see in the general practice, the oncologists and the cardiologists collaborating for the betterment of the patient. I think just to summarize for the audience, again, we talked about one aspect of cardio-oncology, but really an emerging one and uh, one that's really an important aspect of our care. Because unlike other therapies, these immune-based therapies are really being used in all different types of cancers. And in some cases, combined with traditionally tox cardiotoxic drugs, and we really think have to, we have to think outside the box. I think the first thing I would emphasize is the fact that we have to really recognize this early. Talk to the patient, learn the drugs. A lot of times the patients don't come out and say, hey, I'm an immune checkpoint inhibitor. They mention a drug. It may not be the actual name of the generic form of the drug. It may be the brand name. But looking this up and recognizing which drugs are immune-based therapies really, I think, changed the differential diagnosis very quickly. I think we talked a lot about the combination of tools that we have to diagnose this. Start with the EKG and the cardiac biomarkers, recognizing that doesn't really narrow the, narrow the uh, diagnosis to myocarditis, and then use imaging. And if needed, yes, get some tissue, do the biopsy, and this is one area we as cardiologists have to think about getting the biopsy earlier, especially if there's a question about diagnosis. Using steroids early as an initial immunosuppressive therapies, but again, having the diagnosis in hand, uh, then you can think about other therapies, especially if the patient is not responding or you see a deterioration of therapies. And really emphasizing that this is a group effort. A lot of times the myocarditis doesn't occur by itself. In fact, just this today, we had a patient in USCSF whose ancient pres initial presentation was muscle fatigue and had myositis and only then had uh, cardiac issues that became manifest. So it really begs the question of us working with oncologists, but really other colleagues who see these other effects of immune therapies on other organs and really working as a team to better understand this. And I think the last point I wanna emphasize is how this is an area that is absolutely needs more research done. I think we have to work together and we have to really start understanding the best tapes we can care for these patients. So this brings us to the end of our discussion. This was a real pleasure working and listening to you, Doug. Thank you again, and it's been a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening.
Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash AZM 860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.